Hi everyone and welcome to Allocator's Edge, a TVP mini-series where we will be engaging in conversations with the world's top capital allocators. In this ever-changing landscape of heightened inflation and interest rates, we aim to unravel how and why capital allocators make the decisions that they do. Join us as we explore the nuances between healthcare foundations, examining the impact of inflation on endowments, and the strategic choices between share buybacks and dividends for pension schemes. In this mini-series, we aim to shed light on the inner workings of capital allocation, helping both investment teams and listeners gain a better understanding of mandates, global interplay, and the intricate dance between strategy and reality. New episodes of Allocator's Edge will be released on alternating Thursdays, just as we've done with mini-series in the past. This is marketing material for financial professionals and professional clients only. The material is not intended to provide and should not be relied on for accounting, legal, or tax advice or investment recommendations. Reliance should not be placed on any views or information in the material when taking individual investment and or strategic decisions. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. It may not be repeated. Diversification cannot ensure profits or protect against loss of principle. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Exchange rate changes may cause the value of investments to fall as well as rise. Investing in emerging markets and securities with limited liquidity can expose investors to greater risk. Private assets investments are only available to qualified investors who are sophisticated enough to understand the risk associated with these investments. This material may contain forward-looking information such as forecasts or projections. Please note that any such information is not a guarantee of any future performance, and there is no assurance that any forecast or projection will be realized. The views and opinions contained herein are those of the individual to whom they are attributed. It may not necessarily represent views expressed or reflected in any other Schroeder's communications, strategies, or funds. Any reference to regions, countries, sectors, stocks, or securities is for illustration purposes only and not a recommendation to buy or sell any financial instruments or adopt a specific investment strategy. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode in our new mini-series, Allocator's Edge. In this episode, we're going to be looking out over the UK and European markets in the months to come and some of the challenges that are currently facing the pensions industry. We're joined today by Peter Ward and Eiler Tinricks from LEK Consulting. LEK Consulting is a world-class strategy consulting firm with over 40 years of experience advising companies. Its expertise includes corporate strategy, M&A, operations, and organizational performance. Both Peter and Eilert have over 20 years experience in advising investors and leaders in the financial services sector. In this episode, we're going to cover what the landscape of defined contribution and defined benefit look like in the UK, also thoughts on is DB dead? How insurance is participating in the de-risking of the defined benefit space? what their outlook is for Europe, and finally, a survey on the cost of ESG amongst different age groups in the UK, including its findings and implications. Enjoy. Pete Eilert, welcome to the Value Perspective Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. How are you? Very well, thank you. Thank you for having us. Pete, I'm going to start with you. Could you please provide us with a little bit of an introduction about yourself, your journey, and if possible, can you tell us a little bit about LEK Consulting? Of course, yes. Um, so I'm Peter Ward, one of the partners of LEK. Uh, I wear two hats at LEK. One is to co-lead our financial services practice and the other is to head our London office. Um, so I've been with the firm since the back end of 2000, which many would regard as an unwisely long period of time. Uh, but it's been an interesting and varied, uh, interesting and varied career. One of the things I specialise in is, as I say, financial services and pensions is one of the topics we'll be talking about today, hence being here today. On your question about LEK more generally, so LEK is a 
global strategy consulting business. And what that means is uh, we, we apply a range of analytical skills combined with commercial insight and pragmatism to help our clients solve commercial and strategic problems. So, so they're with things like, how do we enter a new market? Um, how, how can I grow in this category? So positive questions. There can be some more emergency type questions to help people get out of turn down troublesome situations. So I've started losing share and I don't, don't know why. And we cover a range of M&A advisory work, which is largely commercial diligence, uh, alongside more practical matters such as post-merger integration, things like that. And we have a, a big more activation-related part of our work, which is around how do you really do the things that we're advising. So operations and performance topics also form a big part of what we're doing today. Is LEK Consulting a global firm or is it UK focus? It, it is it is not quite, but nearly global. So so we we have we have um, over 20 offices around the world. Uh, so we we have uh, around seven in the United States. We have around six in Europe. We've got around uh, around seven in in Asia Pacific. So we're we're not absolutely everywhere, but we are global in scope, and uh, we we work very commonly on global and international projects where we have global and international teams. So as a, a single partnership, we're able to bring together the best of our experts around the world quite easily um, to bear on particular topic matters. Eilert, welcome to the Churler's studio and welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on this new miniseries, The Allocator's Edge. Could you please provide our listeners with a bit of your background and your journey? Uh, pleasure. Thank you very much, Seb. Thanks for having me. Uh, Isla Tinris, I'm a partner at LEK. I've been all my career in the financial services world. Uh, over the last 15 years or so, really increasingly focusing on the impact of the aging population on the economy and the financial services in, in particular, where I really spent my time thinking about how does the people in retirement really funded, um, what products do they have in terms of accumulation in the pension side, that's where DB sits, where, where DC sits, but also thinking about how we then deaccumulate uh, their asset bases as they go through retirement. That will be then including uh, wealth management, but annuities, uh, drawdown products, uh, but also other products in the wider space like equity release. I also think about the population from a healthcare perspective, because that's the other very big part of this population as the aging, what care do they need and how do they fund their care and how do actually those two bar, uh, areas really play together. It's, it's one of the key areas where we as a society will have many, many more opportunities really to support this and really develop structures and products that they are uh, consuming as they go through their retirement. So very nice having me. Thank you very much uh, to talk about this topic today. Do I notice a slight accent, maybe not as strong as mine, but um, <laughs> I think that you are not English-born. I'm not. I'm, I'm German uh, by nationality, um, but joined LEK about 25 years ago, and I've spent uh, most of my career sort of in the LEK network uh, in, in both uh, key regions in Europe, the US, as well as in Australia. And I'd say German and English by nature, by this stage of his career. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Peter. <laughs> Very kind. So, The Algorithm's Edge, we aim to have conversations and sessions with chief investment officers and CEOs of different capital allocators around the world. And we are 
or we've had conversations with the chief investment officers of many pension schemes in the UK and in Europe. And so we would like to explore with you, and to begin with, what is the landscape of the pension sector today in the UK? Very good. Thank you. That's a very good and very broad question. Uh, let me just probably pick up a few facets of that question. So in the main, we are uh, differentiating between occupational pension schemes. That's where we have defined benefit schemes, uh, as well as uh, some defined uh, contribution schemes. And on the other hand, we have insurance-based schemes, uh, which are almost for all sense and purposes, all defined contribution schemes. The big difference between those two, as many people will know, um, defined contribution is really your investing in a in a wrapper into a scheme, and the mortality and the investment risk is carried by the individual. A defined benefit scheme is set up in in almost entirely in occupational uh, settings, where the uh, benefits are being defined at the, at when at entry point. And therefore, the mortality and the investment risk is being carried by the employer, by the, by the sponsor. So what we have seen over the last 30 years is therefore that the sponsors, the employers, increasingly understand that's not really their core business. Their core business of is running a business. Um, British Airways, uh, sometimes we refine to, uh, is, is a pension scheme with an airline hobby. Mm-hmm. So, so therefore, what we've seen in the last 20 years is that increasingly these schemes have closed, um, at least for new members, but also increasingly for new accruals. And therefore, people think DB is dead because it's a thing of the past. It is to some degree, but really where we sit today, we still have 5,000 schemes operating in the UK with about 10 million members of uh, whether pensioners or deferred members or active members. And these schemes are managing uh, about 1.5, 1.4 trillion pounds of assets. It's a huge amount of money and it is hugely important to the overall pension of this country. And therefore, we are seeing really when we talk about longevity in this market, we're talking about uh, decades, not years. There's a whole industry around uh, supporting these schemes and asset managers are one of them. So we are seeing a annual revenue pool of DB advisory firms of about 2.7, maybe two point, maybe 3 billion, of which about 400 million is going in, into investment advice. And that is, does not include the funds and fees that the asset manager gets. So it's a big industry. It's important for asset managers and it will be important for many, many years. Mm. We've just finished a project where we considered uh, about de-risking. Uh, clearly, everyone talks about de-risking today and, and we might want to talk more about this. De-risking is, is therefore buying out the liabilities. And we've modelled um, what the impact might be on the industry. When you say buying out the liabilities, what exactly do you mean by that? What I mean by that is that a um, an insurance company will step in because the defined benefits are there. They cannot be taken away. So in, instead of the uh, sponsor 
really carrying the risk. He will basically hand over the assets and hand over the uh, responsibility of, of that liability, that pension liability, to an insurance company uh, in order to carry that risk and, and really fulfil the commitments that the uh, made for the bank. I think that was, that's a really interesting point, but I would like to step back just for one second. You, you, you phrase the explanation of the current pension landscape on the defined benefit schemes as in it's not dead. What does that exactly mean? And if it's not dead, is it growing? And at what rate it's growing? Or, or how should people, or how do a CIO of many of these very large schemes are thinking about the next years? And you were actually saying it's not even years, it's going to be decades. It's a very interesting question. And I think before answering it very directly, I mean, I think, I think it's of interest to point out that the landscape as it is now is in a sense, uh, it reflects the political history, the philosophical history around how we think about people in retirement, right? So, so the, the defined benefit schemes and the state pension and all this all, all these sorts of things. Yeah, the, the main part of that infrastructure was set, set up around the time of the First World War, where you, you'd have pensions, people retiring at the age of 65, would be expected only to live for a couple more years at that point. And so, and so at that point, it was relatively easy to afford for a much larger workforce uh, than it is now. And, and over, over time, as societies in the UK and around the world have, have had the remarkable achievement of, of better longevity and health and so on, that's had the indirect disbenefit of making those things unaffordable. And, and really how it's transformed over recent decades has reflected the dominance of that lack of affordability over the more philosophical and moral questions that un, underpinned it in the first place. So, so really the, the longevity of DB in part reflects how much of it there is left from the many decades that there were before uh, and how long it takes to transition an entire society from from one to the other. So I, I think that's interesting context, but I, I think you were going to comment on the longevity itself. Yeah, the, the longevity, therefore, of for these people that, that you just mentioned, they need to think about that this is a, a liability which is here for 40, 50 years. It obviously depends exactly on their scheme and on their member base. But when we are modelling this, we are expecting uh, growth, definitely in the asset base, but also in the revenue pool for the servicing industry for at least another sort of six, eight years, 10 years. We then seeing a slowdown, um, probably off the growth. But we think that revenue pool, which is a, a good indicator of the um, longevity of this industry, is... It is going to plateau maybe in 15 years, maybe in 20 years. So this is really a a market which is going to be here, as I said, more for decades than for years. There's increasing need for these funds to be managed appropriately. And therefore, asset managers really need to think about how do they engage with this industry. Asset managers, we think in 2040, probably will be able to earn about 500 million of advice fees just from DB schemes. Mm. That's 15 years out. Mm. It's about 400 million now. Mm. So it will continue to grow and will continue to be an important part of this country's pension uh, for the next 40 years. 
Yeah. And I, I, I've been working in this particular path, the pensions industry, for 20 years now, yeah. I, I would I say. Know. And during all of that period, there have been headlines and industry views that DB is dead. Yeah. And all we have seen since then is that it continues to grow um, because there is still a huge need for advice. And even, even as the schemes close to new members and no new schemes are created and things like that, there's an enormous amount of money and liabilities and benefits to deal with. And and so e even if you think there's a huge amount of buyouts and buy-ins and various other types of de-risking going on, it's huge amounts of money in, 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 in the trillions of pounds. So it simply isn't affordable to close it all quickly. Uh, and even if it were, there's an enormous amount of work to be done, which simply cannot be executed in a, a short period of time either. So it's one of those ones where you think, well, it, it might sound like an optimistic view to say that this market will continue to grow for, for you know, 10, 15 years. But if you think it's not going to, you have to explain what else is going to happen that means it's it's not there. And, and every time it's like, well, there's not enough capital to buy it all out. There's not enough advisory capacity to solve the whole problem, as it were. So, you know, if you... If you do the work and the analysis, you can become very confident that it will be there for some time. And I think you talked about a problem, Peter, but, but it's not necessarily a problem when you think about, the, again, it's in the name, it's a defined benefit scheme. Mm. So the benefit is defined. Mm. So the sponsor knows exactly what he is promising and therefore how much capital he needs to provide in order to uh, live up to the liabilities that, that he has. That is an employee benefit. Mm. It's an employee benefit of the past. We we think today about different employee benefits, but that was the employee benefit of the industry for many, many, many years. So therefore, these schemes, when we talk about de-risking, de-risking is from a an, from an sponsor perspective because he's carrying the mortality and the investment risk as Centrica or as British Airways or British Telecoms, it's not their business to manage mortality risk. Mm. That's why we have insurance companies. That's where the balance sheet of insurance comes coming in. That's why when we talk about de-risking, it means that that liability that the employer has given to the employees has been taken on by an insurance company, which is much better positioned to really deal with pension liabilities. They're running DC schemes. They're, they're running other life insurance schemes. That is their skill set. So therefore, it's offloading in the sense that the assets and the liability will be handed over in a state where it's been assumed to be fully funded. So schemes, when they're de-risking, are handing over pension liabilities, which under today's are being considered to be funded, but clearly need to be managed. There's some expectation that for deferred members, there will be yields achieved through investment strategies, which are uh, linked to liabilities. So it's, it's just a handing over of a responsibility of a liability that the sponsor has been given. And that liability is a lifelong promise. I want to step back before we, we go yeah. into, the, into the insurance bit. You mentioned 5,000 schemes still yep. ongoing in the UK. That seems still like a very large number. And you guys are you specialized in advising M&A uh, for many of your clients. 
is is there a scope for consolidation in the industry? Is that something that you guys have been seeing or is not really feasible? Not on a scheme basis. Because you're you're as a sponsor, you can't sell that your defined benefit scheme from that perspective. Of course, if there is MA between two companies who have their own different schemes, you could consolidate those. But when we're talking to practitioners in the market, they tell us that's quite difficult and you're probably better off retaining them separately and, and just let them run. But what we do see is some of the smaller schemes are being combined into what we call so either master trusts or consolidators, where they are creating structures where smaller schemes can be managed more collectively. And that's is something that we are expecting to see probably more in the future. But it's it's therefore therefore no consolidation and MA as as you think of it in, in a sense. The five thousand schemes are separate schemes and there will be a little consolidation from, from that perspective. Mm. I mean classically MA is is difficult to do in the sense that in most MA transactions, you know, you, you would in some sense look to take best of both in certain functions and things like this but because you know the, the benefits are defined you can't say well this scheme is like this this scheme is like that that one's more uh, beneficial to the scheme owner so let's move this one to that you know the, the degrees of freedom you have around that because of the commitments you have to your beneficiaries defy that to some extent okay and now moving on to the due risk inside of it and the the participation of the insurance companies stepping in to assume those liabilities. How long has this been happening? It's a good question. Uh, definitely for more than 10 years. Uh, I, I don't have at hand the the date of the first de-risking activity to, to, from that matter. It's what a lot of people also refer to as bulk annuity, because in, in essence, it's not that dissimilar to a, a bulk annuity transaction. There are currently eight or nine insurance uh, companies who are participating in that uh, market. Mm -hmm. And we have seen sort of in the order somewhere between 20 to 25 billion uh, of liabilities are being uh, sort of taken out and, and being de-risked. Uh, and that has been sort of volatile on, on an annual basis, slightly depending on, on the exact time of, of de-risking of a larger scheme. But what we've observed in the last so 18 months is that uh, the liabilities of these schemes are, are based on a DCF um, method and, and therefore, as we had a very low interest rate environment, liabilities therefore really were significantly high. Mm. And over the last uh, 18 months, because of the rising interest rate, the liabilities technically have dropped because you are discounting future cash flows and, and therefore uh, mathematically they, they are lower. Which, which meant that more schemes now in a sort of a surplus situation because sponsors have had to put in more money in order to uh, fund those liabilities and we're now in, in, a, in a world where we're seeing uh, an overfunding. And as such, more schemes are, are now really thinking and I have, have a desire to de-risk. Um, therefore, last year, we've seen a, a significant jump in de-risking values, 
Um, I think it's probably more like 40, 45 billion. And we're thinking uh, that this will continue to be a very active market um, for the coming years as schemes are have a desire to de-risk and insurance company bulk annuity providers are have some desire to to deploy some capital what sort of rate of return needs need a the cio of any of these defined benefit schemes meet or achieve or target to meet their obligations that's probably a technical question that we are not quite qualified to answer um but from a from a scheme perspective you need to think about these schemes as schemes have been operated by a board of trustees mm-hmm. and they are acting on behalf of the members and their key objectives is to meet the pension liabilities that they have been promised mm-hmm. Therefore, there is no sort of target for them as saying, I need to achieve that sort of yield. Of course, from this planning perspective, they look at, so what could you achieve in your overall planning of funding these liabilities? How many assets do we have? What other asset classes are you investing into? And therefore, what yield might you expect because that clearly reduces the overall funding requirements from from a sponsor perspective, but that's not necessarily the, the discussion that we are having. Yeah, I mean it's an interesting technical question. There are it's it's more an actuarial one around where are your assets allocated to? How much is going to be in equities, bonds, other 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 things? What assumptions do you make around that? Um, and because the liabilities are so long term, you're you're looking at making assumptions over over multiple decades and and there are different valuation methods according to what you expect to do with the scheme so a, a buyout valuation is different to an ongoing one um for example but the the, the assumptions are in actual met- methodologies are reasonably standard but they they may they may not reflect how the assets are actually allocated in some cases but it's a question we have advised on for example we did help marconi when it was when it was being acquired by Ericsson, when when to, to Islet's earlier remark about British Airways, Marconi really was a pension fund with a telecoms hobby mm-hmm. at that at that time, and and in order to execute that transaction, there needed to be a substantial amount of capital set aside to cover those pension liabilities, which Ericsson quite understandably did not, did not wish to acquire, whilst protecting the interests of the of the beneficiaries. And so, how you actually go about allocating the assets, what's safe to assume is a question we've looked at on a more commercial rather than actuarial basis. Interesting. In a previous conversation that we had before, you mentioned the importance of a new requirement, which is the consumer duty requirement. And you were making the point that that is something of, it's a big change and something that people need to be more aware of. What is the consumer consumer duty requirement and why is it so important? Consumer duty is uh, a new regulation where the FCA is trying to ensure that the consumer uh, is getting a fair value, uh, that the consumer is being considered uh, to be treated fairly, that the consumer is uh, getting the service uh, that they are paying for. And that does include the entire value chain 
in the financial services world. Uh, so it clearly does include the financial advisor, but it goes all the way down to the asset managers. Uh, and when we're having discussion with the asset manager uh, part of the market, there's a clear expectation that this will drive up um, regulatory internal cost because also the asset managers needs to demonstrate that whatever they're charging in terms of management charge uh, is is a fair question mark what fair means but mm. but that's clearly a lot of FSA regulations are thematic um, and therefore everyone needs to determine what what fair means they need to make sure that the consumer understands what they are paying for and and therefore we are expecting that there are at least two or three impacts uh, also on the asset manager and fund manager um, part of, of the value chain in in terms of um, transparency what are the, what are you paying for and then the ability to articulate what are they paying for what are the 50 60 100 basis points what activity does that actually in, include so therefore we have seen uh, on more on the advice uh, layer that much more is about cost to serve so that people have to be able to demonstrate i'm charging 100 basis points what does that actually cost me? Mm. Uh, so the FCA is not a price regulator, mm. but the FCA will therefore drive more oversight and that will drive up cost. And I assume that might also lead to slightly more price pressure on, on the asset manager level. Uh, that's that's one. The other aspect, if they closely into that, is the uh, assessment of value. Um, again, a regulation which just came in reasonably recently Again, which will require the fund management industry and the asset management industry uh, to to demonstrate that they are actually providing value. I think they need to report annually on on that. Uh, How do they show that they are? That is a very value? good question. Um, it is that, and the, and the regulator is not clear about that. It is therefore they need to consider is what they service they're providing and the charge that they are charging for that service is that value appropriate mm. that there is a, they are not a price setter but they will clearly look at how you justify the cost i know that you guys are specialists in the uk market that's where you operate the companies that you advise your clients are here but given that lk has a presence in europe how different is the landscape for pension schemes and regulation in europe versus the UK, given that Brexit has already happened. And I think that there is a sort of a, an expectation that the UK will drift a little bit apart from the frameworks that were established by by continental Europe. Many of the leading European economies are have a very different approach to pension. Um, they have a much stronger government-based system. Uh, Germany, for example, and Pete, you already alluded to, to that. So Germany introduced a pension, uh, I think, sort of in sort of 1890 or so, maybe 1895 or something. Uh, Bismarck was introducing it. And as you rightly said, at the time, 
uh, he thought he, he was doing a really good trick by setting the retirement age actually above the the average life expectancy of, of miners, for, for example. So he said that that's a good idea. And it's remarkable that, that as, you, as, Peter, as you said, that we as, um, as a society still have the 65, which was set sort of the best part of 130 years ago, as our retirement age. So these European systems are much more government-based, which sort of is good or bad. Good in the sense that most people do not need to think about their private retirement savings as much as here in the UK. Bad in a sense that most of these schemes are unfunded hmm. uh, and and they're, are, are therefore they're, the they're pay-as-you-go. Are most of the schemes DB or DC? They are government-based and, and they're unfunded. Okay. So they're, they're so from that perspective, they're neither DB nor yeah, DC. Um, they are, are just a a scheme uh, which is, has pay as you go. Now, in one sense, you can say it's a Ponzi scheme because <laughs> um, people who who are receiving money now are, are that that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, but what we're seeing is that even in these countries, the government's realizing is what the liabilities are, and they're pushing more and more pressure on the individuals to save for their pensions. Mm -hmm. So they, they are reducing the benefits. Um, they are interestingly now considering at least to increase the retirement age. Um, again, Germany is one something I clearly know slightly better. Um, interesting that for a couple of years ago, they reduced the retirement age. Uh, it was complete madness. Uh, but they're now thinking it to increase into 67, I think 68. Uh, and that is in, in so therefore we're seeing on the continent more government-based systems, which are increasingly moving to more where the UK is already, um, where the UK clearly is a, a more mature market. And the other difference is that the continental uh, European markets very often use um, life insurance structures to actually mm. offer um, pension savings. So it's it's a different tax wrapper from from that perspective which really benefits the insurance companies um, because they are the only one who are able to provide those tax wrappers it then provides uh, a lot of money uh, for their quite often in-house asset management functions um, because these managed are being be managed these are largely dc based schemes and then you're finding um the odd db um, uh, scheme. Again, Germany has a few, again, because of, of its history, the Siemens, um, the BASF buyers, they all, Daimler, they all have DB schemes because when they were set up 60, 80 years ago, that was the, the, the employee benefits that people thought of. And these large industrial conglomerates all thought that they needed to provide some support for their at least middle management when they retire. I read recently that many people's solution to some of the issues around the pension landscape is the fact that the retirement age was set at a time where people, when people were not living as long as they are now. And then the solution to that is to increase the age of retirement, as you just pointed out that they were saying that, or they were claiming on that article, that many people are finding it very difficult to keep their jobs past a certain age. And then they become unemployable. So actually, if you push 
the retirement age too much, then you mm. are actually putting at risk the quality of life of a lot of people. Do you have any any thoughts about that? Weird topic you think about? Yeah, that. no. I, well, I, do, I, I mean, I think it, 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 it's it's a matter of political philosophy and what the pension is for, right? And in, in the UK example, the state pension established around yeah, the time of the First World War, it was, it was around, well, most people doing manual jobs. And if you've been doing a manual job to the age of 65, when you probably started when you were 14, you've been doing 50 years of manual work, you've probably accumulated a bunch of physical ill health, injury and stuff like this. And it's a respectful... It's a respectful way to allow people to live for a while longer when it's demeaning to continue. Mm. The philosophy was absolutely not let us pay for people to have a 25-year holiday at the end of their life. And of course, yeah, that, that's an extreme way to describe it. But some people would think of it think of it that way. So I, I think it's one where you've got to choose what you think the, the pension is for. And, and so, so with respect to keeping jobs past a certain age, of course, there is also legislation around not being biased against people for reasons of age and things like that. So that needs to, to continue to keep pace with these changes and be implemented in practice. So there, there will be some avoidance of that legislation, not by saying, well, you, you, you have to retire because you're 65, but finding some other reason, which is highly correlated with 65. But I, th I think it's not, it's not automatic from a moral or philosophical perspective that you should increase the age just in line with mortality so, um, and, and life expectancy, but it will be a consideration. But you do need to think about what else you're going to do. So, so some increase, while, whilst you've got a long working life in good health and physical health continues to improve, one would expect that on the whole it's reasonable to continue to increase the age in, in line with that. But the other consideration, of course, is what's what's deliverable politically. And in, in many countries, but specifically the UK, the people in receipt of pensions and over 55 vote a lot more than people under those ages. So, so there's a disproportionate political impact, you know, electorally around, around what a government can say it's going to do on that while still having any chance of being elected. And that, that's one of the reasons why... The age is stuck where it is for decades because no one wants to be the person who's going to be taking the taking the goodies away. But it's it's been in denial for such a long time now. It's very difficult. But it, you know, it comes down to so, so some people say I want the same rights as my grandfather, mm. but your your grandfather retired at sixty five and would be expected to live till sixty nine, and you're retiring now at sixty five and having got to the age of sixty five, you would now expect to live to what 85 87 at that age you know so the overall life expense is a bit lower because people die younger than that but having got there mm. it, so the commitment is more than 10 times as as much and i think this uh, totally agree with you peter uh, let me just a couple of other thoughts sort of Historically, people thought about retirement about a, a just a particular almost day when you turn 65 you retire so from one day you were employed to the next day you retired. That sort of sharp sort of decommission line has disappeared. When we think about retirement these days, retirement is a process that starts around 55, maybe 60, and then ends when people are almost turning 70. So retirement isn't anymore something that basically happens overnight 
Retirement is something that people change how they engage. They may at yeah, 55, 60, slightly depend where they are in, in their life, where, where the family is. They wanted to work a bit less. They may go half-time. But because they're turning 65, that doesn't mean they're not anymore having things to contribute to the society. I think, Peter, you're absolutely right. We are, as a society today, have much more service industries with much more um, less and less physical um, work. So therefore, why wouldn't somebody who's 65 not able to, to continue to coach, to continue to train? And when we think about the workforce, I, I had a, this morning a, um, a, a seminar about in, in the healthcare space where we're seeing such a shortage of healthcare, trained, skilled, experienced healthcare workers. It would be disastrous if we, as a society, think at 65 and send everyone into retirement. We should rather think about how can we engage these people for longer, economically keep them economically engaged, which would mean that they have an income and therefore we can slightly um, reduce the pressure on the retirement funds because we are thinking about their retirement income in a more holistic way. And that's why I think it is right to say the individuals are also responsible more by thinking about their retirement income. It's not just the government. So, But it's wrong from the government to push it entirely down to the individual to carry mortality risk and investment risk because the individual is the least capable uh, part of the whole chain to carry mm. that risk. Mm. It's either insurance company, probably that's probably the best, or the government, but the government isn't really, that's not their role either, nor is it the employers. So I think that's where the insurance uh, industry definitely have a very important part to play, and that's where asset managers have a very important role to play. And say, well, what uh, return, what yield can you sensibly uh, generate without really risking the branch? And if I look at some of the asset allocations in the DB schemes, for example, I looked at it yesterday, 70% sits in cash and bonds. Wow. So a little bit like the junior ISOs. Then you, then you look at it and say, well, cash well, well. Shouldn't, shouldn't you, given that this is such a long uh, investment, yeah. shouldn't you have an, a, a slightly higher exposure to well, equity where the, the wisdom definitely is that the stock market is still generating on a longer term, more sustainably superior revenues than cash. Hmm. Which leads me to my next question. <clears throat> you make a reference about the uh, the sort of expected yield these pension pots should achieve so that they actually can meet their expectations. And LK, you carry a survey on the topic of ESG and how different age groups of people were thinking about energy transition, climate change, and how to invest or where they wanted to invest their assets. And I think that you had some some really interesting insights into that. Can you can you can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, well, I'm happy to do so. Um, let, let me start, and, and Peter, please also come come in. So we've done a, a consumer survey. Um, I don't know, six months ago or nine months ago, um, in which we we ask uh, about the interest in in, in ESG um, investment uh, solutions. And really, really encouraging and good to see 
75% or also said are very interested or or, or interested, uh, which clearly is a, is a high proportion and say the consumer definitely is interested in ESG as an investment topic. Uh, we then uh, segmented that by age. Uh, and it was interesting uh, to see that the younger are more interested than the slightly um, more older. So over 65 definitely uh, were less interested in, in ESG. And again, encouraging to see is that the the younger and the younger was probably I think below forty. We're also at least expecting some either higher cost or some lower returns when investing in in ESG sort of products. So that's quite encouraging. Therefore, from a again from an asset manager perspective, uh, clearly a topic that people should pick up on. Uh, and clearly a topic uh, that the consumer is is interested and in and want to hear more about. Hmm. And it, it, it's a very interesting one in, in terms of what drives interest in ESG investing around the world. And, we, and we've done quite a lot of quite interesting strategy work in this area where one of the findings is that the, the transition towards more interest in ESG investing in the United States is driven more by ultimately consumers, but more investment funds themselves and regulation contributes to that, whereas in, in Europe, regulation is driving it more mm. and consumers are kind of catching up to that. And uh, to some other observations, so we've also done some similar survey work in, in banking and pe- people articulate their interest in um, working with ESG-friendly or green banks, but they, they actually move less than that. So they state an interest, but they don't do it as much mm. as they as much as they say they were going to. But there, there's a huge infrastructure growing around ESG investing. Um, so as, as the regulation becomes broader and more clearly defined and you, you move from relatively straightforward to quantify scope one emissions towards scope two and even scope three emissions where you're mandated to consider the impact of your supply chain as well as what you're doing directly in your energy supply and things and things like that. So that, that broadens it out quite considerably. And there are some very interesting um, ethical questions around how you achieve the transition. So, for example, there are uh, superficially attractive statements such as don't invest in any oil companies. Mm-hmm. Um, but the oil companies are clearly in in the driving seat in terms of transitioning away from oil. And, and they need to be invested in to help them to do that. And if you simply defund them, you're not going to help not going to help the problem. Um, but it, it, however you think about it, though, it's a, it is rightly an area of hugely increased interest, and and you know the train has left the station on this. The, the momentum will keep going. Did Did you find in your survey that the younger generations understand the trade off and the cost that it will it might imply for them to be excluding certain sectors or segments or companies from their portfolios? Asked in that very direct way, my hypothesis is no, they don't. Because in our survey, they definitely indicated that they needed and wanted more information. So when you think about, in this context, about the retail market, there's a very clear need to uh, educate and inform the financial advice market about ESG about what it means, where investing or not investing, what are the cost implications. 
there's a very clear indication from that that uh, survey that there is interest. Um, I think the understanding it will be very different. Some understand it very well. I think some definitely need more. So therefore, I, I would definitely, again, think mainly from an asset manager perspective, from a fund manager perspective, uh, and and retail is an interest market. Uh, absolutely, there is a great desire there, but it needs much more education and and, and communication. And the um, IFA channel, the the investment advisor. Uh, need much more information and also informing about what and when and how. Mm, I, I agree. I mean, I, I think the the interest is at the level of principle, really. And and I, and I think, unfortunately, despite information requirements and so on, most consumers don't really have a very clear picture either of the cost of investing or what the expected returns are. Mm. In the first place, so it's a little is a little difficult, and I, and I and I would say, further, you know, it's not it's not completely clear that returns have to be lower for ESG investments at all, and 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 many green investment funds will say, if you look at funds which have positive ESG characteristics, and you invest in companies that have those characteristics, the returns are better because ultimately sustainability of those companies, in the sense of they have business models that are sustainable over a long time, including in relation to sustainability reg- legislation, but not only that. They are worth more because, of course, they will be sustained into the future. So so, so I think there may be a transitional period during which the, the argument that ESG funds sh- should return lower, it may, may, it may be partly justifiable, but I, I expect over time it, it, it won't be, particularly as it becomes more and more expensive not to comply with the SG regulation. Uh, and so, so that, that will dampen down the, the performance of companies that don't. We're coming to an end of our session and we ask all our guests for a book recommendation. So I'm going to start with Eilert uh, first, please. Interesting, very good question. I would uh, go slightly off-piste here. Uh, I, I would think of uh, Guns, Germs and Steel, um, I, I think from, from Jared Diamond. I find a really interesting book, which deals about the evolution uh, of of the human race, but also really starts to explore why is the Western world, um, from today's perspective, clearly has more successful economies, uh, bigger growth, uh, more wealth, uh, why some of these reasons are. And is that down that we are um, more intelligent? Or actually, are there other reasons um, which are slightly much more random uh, that benefited uh, particularly Europe in its evolution? Uh, so, a really interesting book. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, uh, so, um, that would be my recommendation. Pete? Uh, well, I, well, I think Eilis is a very good recommendation to start. <laughs> I, I would say that. Um, my recommendation, so I, I, I will recommend uh, American Prometheus, which is the the biography of Robert Oppenheimer that underpinned the Oppenheimer movie last year. So I think that the movie was great and good luck to it in in the Oscars, but it was of considerable length. Um, But in many ways, it it just scratched the surface of the Mm. scientific and political context in which it was operating. So I I was prompted by that movie to read the book, which I would emphasise is of even more considerable length. It's close to a thousand pages, but is extremely interesting if you would like to learn more either about uh, the science or the politics around what was going on. But it, it stops short of very technical explanation, but it's certainly very enlightening and I much enjoyed it. 
That's fantastic. Thank you very much both for coming to the Value Prospect podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us. <laughs>